I just realised the, um, the microphone wasn't on mute, and I normally make sure it is before I get a beer because I can't really sing. So I, I'm, I'm sorry if I ruined that last. Um, I'm sorry if I ruined that last song for anyone. Um, uh, you know what, guys? I, I, I love this church. It's good, isn't it? Isn't it good? Just standing there this morning, uh, it's so good to be here together as family. It's so good to be just spending time in the presence of God. I just think we've heard so clearly from him already just in our time of worship this morning. You know, that message that, that he is surrounding us, that he is fighting our battles, that we're not called to take up our arms, but to surrender to him, to trust him as he, as he leads us through. You know, life's tough, isn't it? It's hard. I know there's many people that are having a tough time at the moment. And so just to be here together, to declare that truth, to encourage each other, oh, it just moves me. I'm just, I'm excited about that. I'm going to start in a minute. I just, I just felt I needed to say that this morning. And you know, if it, I, don't lose that sense this morning of, of what God's doing in this place and what God's doing in your heart. And, and maybe just as I'm speaking, if, if you feel that God's already talking to you, just keep praying into that. And as Tim has already said, you know, after the service, there's people around that can stand with you and, and pray with you and encourage you. And I just, um, I, want you to, I want you to do that because we're here for each other, right? We can love each other. We can care for each other in this way. Amen. <laughs> It's good to see you. Welcome if you've snuck in since the beginning of the service. Um, you are, we're glad that you're here. Um, thank you for joining us. You, if, you, if you are joining us today for the first time, you might not know that we are in the middle of a teaching series um, in Mark. Mark my words is what we've called it. I'm looking at the gospel, the book of Mark, if you, if you like. And if you are here for the first time, you've actually picked a really good time to come and join us because the story's about to kind of switch gears. The narrative's going to change um, a little bit. If you've got your, your Bibles with you or phone or tablet or whatever you're using, um, Mark 11 is where we're going to go today. Mark chapter 11. And if you're not new, you might be uh, asking at this point what happened to the rest of Mark um, chapter 10. Dan, where is it? Um, well, I'm going to skip it. Um, not because it's too difficult, um, or because Steve's not here and I can do what I want. Um, <laughs> but really, it's because I want to move us on to the Easter narrative this morning. As Amy's mentioned already today, we're about to enter into to our second term this year, and this is the term that leads us up to Easter. Um, and so I want us to kind of move on in that journey, but I'm not going to shortchange you, don't worry. So for f five minutes... Just five minutes, uh, I'm going to do a whistle-stop tour of the rest of chapter 10, okay? If you want to flick back a page, we're going to go quick. This isn't the, the main sermon. This is like an amuse-bouche, okay? It's a, an appetizer. So, verse 32 of chapter 10, we see that Jesus and his followers, not just his disciples, but a whole crowd of people, are on their way up to Jerusalem. They're going up to Jerusalem, not because Jerusalem was north, but because Jerusalem was higher. So they're heading literally up to Jerusalem. Not the first time that Jesus has been to Jerusalem, but it would be the last. 
This is the last time that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to face his execution at the hands of the chief priests and the teachers of the law. This is the pinnacle of his work. This is exactly what it is that he came to do on earth. And so he turns to his disciples and he says, you know what, guys, when we get to Jerusalem, it's going to be tough. It's not going to go well. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be betrayed, condemned, mocked, spat upon, flogged and killed. But it won't be the end, because after three days I will come back. It's the third time Jesus has told his disciples this exact same thing, having previously done it in chapters 8 and 9. But as in the previous chapters, the disciples, they don't really get it. Remember a few weeks ago I spoke about this theme of misunderstanding that exists in these middle chapters of Mark. The disciples still think Jesus is going to launch some sort of coup, take over Jerusalem, reign on high as an earthly king. And so James and John decide to put their request in early for some special treatment. They say, hey, Jesus, can I sit on your left and my brother sit on your right when you come into glory? But Jesus, who had in mind all of the suffering and all of the anguish that he was about to um, before, tells them, you don't know what it is you're asking. You don't know what it is you're asking. Unfortunately, this leads to more arguments among the disciples because they think James and John have secured themselves some kind of special privilege. And so again, Jesus says, as he did in chapter 9, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And we looked at that in great deal in chapter 9, part 2, if you want to listen back to that. But finally, at the end of chapter 10, we just find this incredible story, this wonderful little tale about a man called Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus. Bar is son of, son of Timaeus. And Timaeus means to honour, to honour. And it's kind of ironic in the story because nobody pays him any honour. He was blind, you see, and so he was treated as less than worthy. And when he hears that Jesus is coming into Jericho, remember, on his way to Jerusalem, he shouts for him. He says, Son of David, have mercy on me. But everyone tells him to shut up. They say, be quiet, Barty. He's not interested in you. But then it says in verse 49, Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped. You know, the beauty and the majesty of those words just blow me away. Here was Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, about to begin the last week of his life to fulfill all that the Father had called him to do, a man on a mission. He had stresses and strains. He had to keep explaining things to his disciples. His workforce didn't have a clue what was going on. There were crowds of people following him. They all wanted something from him. Jesus, can you just, Jesus, will you help me? Jesus, can you just do this? And it would have been the easiest thing in the world for him to just keep going. But it says Jesus stopped. Jesus Stopped and he called him. And he says the same people that were saying, shut up, Barty, suddenly started saying, hey, cheer up. He's calling you on your feet. It's all right. Almost sycophantic, isn't it? But notice how their voices change when Jesus shows him honour. Bartimaeus throws his cloak aside and runs to Jesus and Jesus says, what can I do for you? He stops and then he takes an interest in him, and wouldn't we, the world be a better place if we all learned to stop and take an interest in each other instead of only thinking about ourselves? I want to see, Rabbi, and Jesus gives him back his sight, and he follows him. So that's the end of chapter 10. That's the, 
the mini-sermon before the sermon. And now we're going to move on to the main course, chapter 11. So, after Jericho, Jesus arrives on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and this is where our story begins. As I mentioned at the start, the story it takes a turn from this point. Uh, Mark's uh, gospel in its entirety is only 16 chapters long. It's the kind of shortest of all the gospels, and Mark uses the first 10 chapters of his gospel to tell us about incredible things that Jesus did in the first three years of his ministry. Ten chapters for three years, and then the last six chapters of Mark are all about the last week of his life. So it's almost as though Mark has been racing to, to kind of get us to this point and now he, he slows down and he says, all right, we're here. This is the bit that really matters. This is where we need to focus in. According to John's Gospel, Jesus actually arrives at Bethany, which is a little village on the outskirts of Jerusalem on Friday. He stays with Mary and Martha and Lazarus on Friday. Saturday was the Sabbath, so he probably just chilled out as was the custom, um, with his disciples. And then on Sunday, that's when he finally heads into the city itself. It's the day that Christians traditionally refer to as Palm Sunday. And this is what Mark writes at the beginning of chapter 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back shortly. It's just a loner. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway, and they untied it. Some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem, went to the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So there we are. That's day one of Passion Week. Bit of an anticlimax, really, isn't it? Jesus sort of half steals, half borrows a colt. Matthew fact tells us it was a donkey. He comes into Jerusalem, some people sing at him. He has a quick look around and then heads back to Mary and Martha's for his supper. The chapter heading in my Bible is the triumphal entry. It probably is in in yours too, but I don't think that was written by those that were there because Jesus didn't actually do anything. He just sort of looked around a bit and left. I imagine those there would have called it perhaps the disappointing entry or the... I can't believe I gave up my whole Sunday to follow Jesus around when he didn't actually do anything, entry. And what's happening here? Why does, why does Mark even include this in his gospel when it seems like such a false start? Well, I think to answer that, we need to, we need to read a little bit further into the chapter. But before we do, I just want to point out a couple of um, subtle things that are going on here in this text. Let's deal with the donkey in the room first. 
Why did Jesus, who was very used to walking, he walked everywhere for three years, suddenly decide that he needed a donkey? Well, believe it or not, the donkey was supposed to send a message. And not in a Numbers 22 kind of way for you Bible geeks out there. But as a symbol or, or, or status, you know when like celebrities turn up at movie premieres, they don't arrive in a beat-up old Ford Focus and park in a nearby NCP car park and then walk across the road in their tatty jeans and t-shirt, do they? They arrive in a limousine and they pull up outside the movie theatre and there's a red carpet and they have a, a fancy suit or dress made by some special designer and everyone takes photos and they sort of pose, you know. When the Pope turns up, he doesn't do so on a Vespa, although that would be awesome. He's got a little <laughs> special car, hasn't he? He's Pope Mobile, as it were, so everyone can catch a glimpse of his holy eminence. Well, the same is, is kind of true for the donkey. Now, you might be thinking it's not very glamorous, is it, a donkey? Why didn't Jesus use like an elephant or something? But you see, the donkey wasn't for pizzazz. It was instead to jog people's memories of a certain prophecy that was given by Zechariah in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, to be precise, which says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. Those are just um, fancy names for the nation of Israel. And uh, Jerusalem and Zion are the same place. It's the place that Jesus was in this moment. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, in this moment, Jesus wants to be seen as a king, a king who is righteous and victorious. And that's exactly how his followers and those in the city react to him. They, they spread their cloaks on the floor and they waved branches as they had done when Simon Maccabees, another Jewish leader, had taken back Jerusalem 200 years previously. They shout, Hosanna! And Hosanna means save or, or rescue or, or help. And they, they sing words from Psalm 118. It's the one that starts, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. I think Chris Tomlin reworked it a few years back. His love endures forever. Told you I can't sing. Um, anyway, later on in the psalm it says this, Lord save us, Lord grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. It was a, a really familiar psalm for Jewish people because it was part of the Hallel which means praise, you know, the word hallelujah, praise God. And Jesus himself quotes it on, on other occasions. But the atmosphere was one that was expectant of victory. It was expectant of victory. Jesus had finally come to Jerusalem, the, the nation's capital, to retake the city, to, to drive out the Gentiles, to establish his kingdom and his rule. What was he going to do? The people were asking. This is exciting. Is he going to hold a rally like Trump? Hopefully not. Is he going to call people to arms? Is he going to demand a meeting from the rulers of the city? Is he going to call down fire from heaven? How is he going to fight our battle? As we've been singing this morning. What is he going to do? There was an expectancy in the air. But of course in this moment Jesus doesn't appear to do anything. He sort of goes to the temple. He has a look round. He sees the gift shop and the food court and the tour guides. And then he checks his watch and decides it's a bit late and heads back out of the city. 
They're expecting a victory rally, but it was an internal inspection that needed to take place first. So what was he looking for? Well, as I've said already, we need to read a little bit further. So down to verse 12, please. The next day, Monday morning, we're on now. Everyone hates Mondays, right? As they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Fair enough. He's got a big day ahead. He needs a big breakfast. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it, which kind of makes me think he said it quite loudly, maybe even shouted it. Bad start. Never mind. Disciples thought maybe we'll get some drive through on the way into the city, but no such luck. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. So that was Monday. Jesus shouts at a tree, chases some people out of the temple, tips over some tables, tells everyone off and leaves again. <clears throat> Did he wake up on the wrong side of bed? Did his hunger get the better of him? This chapter gets stranger and stranger. Although I think Mark might be trying to tell us something here about why Jesus did what he did in the temple court through the illustration of the fig tree. You see, in the same way that Jesus inspected the temple on Sunday, he inspects the fig tree on Monday. I kind of wonder if Jesus was actually looking for the same thing on both occasions. Fruit. You see, in the case of the fig tree, it was figs. In the case of the temple, it was prayer. And more specifically, it was a place where the Gentiles, those who were not Jewish, could pray. You see, Jesus' anger towards the tree was not because he was hungry, although he was, but because the tree had the appearance of bearing fruit, but actually bore none. Its leaves were were green and lush, And from a distance it looked ripe, but upon closer inspection there was nothing there. The tree was bare. And if there were no fruits, there were no seeds, it's no way for it to reproduce. No matter how perfect it looked on the outside, it had no future. You see, Jesus being the the kind of master teacher that he was, I think he, he uses this tree as a visual metaphor for what was happening inside Jerusalem at this time. Because the temple was was splendid. It was this magnificent, incredible building. The facade itself was 165 feet tall and wide and it was made out of three different types of marble and it had a a base of these blue stones. The outer walls, they were like five meters thick and some of the stones used to create it weighed over 100 tons. The historian Josephus 
um, said of the temple that it resembled a snowy mountain glistening in the sun because it was overlaid with gold and if the sun shone on it, you couldn't even look directly at it. It looked fantastic. It looked perfect. It looked brilliant. But on the surface, that was true. Upon closer inspection, things were not as they were supposed to be. You see, the outer court, the the court of the Gentiles had become this marketplace where retailers had set up shop, allowing people who hadn't brought their own sacrifices with them to buy sacrifices at premium prices. It's like when you go to the cinema and they charge you £35 for a small Coke and a popcorn. They know they've got you, right? No one wants to see a film without popcorn. No one wants to go to the temple and not make a sacrifice. It attracted visitors from all over the place and they all brought their own coin, their own currency with them from Greece and and Rome and uh, Egypt. And so in order to pay the temple tax, they had to have the temple money. And so there there were money changers who would swap their money for a small fee. There were markets surrounding the outer walls of the temple as well. And so people would be bringing what they'd sold through the temple court, using it as a thoroughfare. There was incense being burned and, and food eaten. It was loud and it was smelly and the, everyone was shouting over each other to kind of get what it was that they wanted. You sort of picture the German market in Birmingham on a, on a Saturday before Christmas. That's the sort of thing we're looking at here. It was chaos. There was no space to meet with God. There was no space to pray. There was no space to heal. There was no space to receive spiritual sustenance. And so in the same way that Jesus shouted at the tree, he shouts in the temple courts. He shouts two phrases, both of them taken from the Old Testament. Again, prophets. Prophets that those in the temple would have known well. And as Jesus shouts these phrases, he does it deliberately so that they will recall, they will bring to mind what these sections of these prophets are talking about. The specific message that they were given. The first is from Isaiah. It's chapter 56 in our Bibles. It's a chapter that begins this way. Maintain justice. Do what is right. For my salvation is close to hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. And then it goes on to speak about those who are not Jewish being given a permanent place in his kingdom. It says foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and all who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar and my house will be called a prayer for all nations. All nations, for everyone. You know, Jesus was about to die to make a way for everybody to come to him. For everybody to experience the love of God for themselves. But it was always the plan. It was always the plan that everyone who wanted it would have a place in God's kingdom. The second um, prophet Jesus quotes is Jeremiah, chapter 7 in our Bibles. And Believe it or not, it's a chapter about looking good but not bearing any fruit. Funny that, isn't it? It starts, hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. It's very on the nose, this, isn't it? You who come through the gates. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, 
or the fatherless or the widow or shed the innocent blood in this place. If you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place. In the land I will give your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. And it goes on to say, has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, says the Lord, or inspecting. Jesus' message really couldn't be any clearer to the people that were there. And his accusation was this. You know what, guys? You were supposed to be a light to others. But your actions have actually kept people from God. You were supposed to be a light to others. But your actions have kept people from God. And so I'm going to deal with this. You see, there's incredible irony in this chapter. The people who sung on Sunday, who's Hosanna, had expected Jesus to save them from the ruling class, the Roman government, those they, they saw as the oppressors. But in reality, Jesus had come to deal with their oppression of others. In reality, Jesus had come to deal with their neglect of the nations. He'd come to deal with their pride in what they had built their belief that because they met in the house of the Lord, their behavior was somehow excusable. He called them to account for what they had built. And he said, you know what? It might look good on the surface, but where's the fruit? I can't find it. I wonder if it's possible that maybe sometimes our lives can look really good on the surface. But upon closer inspection, things are perhaps not as they should be. Mark finishes this lesson for us on Tuesday. As Jesus and his disciples are passing that fig tree again, it says in verse 20, In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. The roots were rotten. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, that that fig tree you cursed, it's, it's withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go and throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. And therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Look, look, Rabbi, says Peter, like an excited child still surprised at the power of God it seems almost comical doesn't it that he could spend three years with Jesus and still be surprised by anything yeah I suppose many of us could testify to the powerful ways that God has worked in our lives and still doubt his faithfulness for the future but Jesus isn't surprised I doubt he even looks at the tree he tells his disciples if they had faith they could move mountains that was a popular rabbinic saying at the time but look at what he tags to the end He says, but as you stand and pray, remember to check your heart. If there's unforgiveness there, then you need to deal with it. It's the same lesson that he's been teaching all along, that God cares far less about your words and your posture than he does about the fruit of your life. Than the way that you treat those around you, your compassion, your your kindness, that, that love that you show for each other. John records a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples um, later in the week. It was actually on the, the Thursday evening at the Last Supper. And I wonder if during that conversation, Jesus wanted to remind them of this tree, because this is what he says. I'm the vine, you are the branches. 
If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. It says, if you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Like that fig tree. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. And then he goes on to speak about the the kind of love that they were supposed to have for each other. I was just struck this week as as I read this chapter for myself and And I was praying about what to bring this morning, that it says the tree had withered from the root. It was disconnected from the the source of life and therefore died. I remember um, a while ago, um, Sean and I uh, went to Ikea. It's one of our favorite things to do. Um, The meatballs. Um, But we brought brought a a dragon tree, mainly because it sounded cool. Dragon tree. Um, and there was three of them in the, in the pot. And like um, most house plants that we buy after a few days, they start to look a bit sad. <laughs> We're not great at caring for house plants. Um, and so we remembered to water it. And, um, but one of them, trees, one of the three, it didn't seem to be recovering. The leaves were sort of dropping off and, and it was not looking healthy at all. And I remember just um, touching the trunk and it, it sort of crumpled like paper in my hands. And I just gave it a little tug and it came out of the soil so easily because there were no roots. There were no roots attached to this tree at all. And it might have looked good in the shop, but because there was no root, it just withered away from the inside out. You know, if we don't make the effort to remain connected to Jesus, we cannot expect to grow. In fact, I think we can expect the exact opposite, that we'll begin to waste away. And so where does this leave us this morning? We've done a lot of kind of digging into this chapter today, but what does it mean for us? What's, what's going to be our takeaway from this today? Well, as Jesus entered that city on Sunday, the people shouted, save us. And they believed that the things they needed saving from were on the outside, the world around them. And in reality, in reality, upon closer inspection, it was the corruption in their own hearts that they needed rescuing from. On the surface, things looked really good. The leaves were were green, but the reality was that their lives were not producing any fruit. And the reason for that is their hearts were far away. They were withering from the root. And so I wonder if maybe the challenge for us this morning is not to be content with surface living, assuming that the problem is with everybody else and not with us, but that as we pray, that as we approach God with our own requests, that we check our own hearts. And that we make sure there are not things that we are harboring that shouldn't be there. We make sure that we are not holding on to unforgiveness. You see, just like the tree, the temple was eventually destroyed because the presence of God was no longer there. He instead lives in us. It's what we were singing about before um, I, I got up to speak. And as Paul so poetically puts it in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, you know what, our bodies now, it's our bodies that are temples for the Holy Spirit. And I suppose really, it's up to us what we allow into our own temple, isn't it? And as much as the temple courts were so full with retail outlets and, and money lenders and busybodies, there was no room for God. 
We too can fill our lives with stuff that shouldn't be there. We can fill our lives with things that prevent us from being fruitful. The sorts of things Paul speaks about in Galatians 5. He says, you know, the acts of the flesh, they're obvious. He says sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. He says, I warn you as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But he says the fruit of the Spirit, he says, well, that's love. He says, that's joy. That's peace. That's forbearance and and, and kindness and and goodness and and gentleness and self-control. What does the temple court of your life look like this morning? Is it a place where anyone can come and find the presence of God? Or does it maybe need a little bit of sorting out? As Jesus takes a look around there today, what will he find there? I wonder if, um, Tim, I wonder if you'd come and bring the band back up as I bring this to, to land this morning. It might be, I suppose, that this morning as you've kind of sat and you've, you've la- listened, maybe you're, you're thinking, feeling a bit challenged maybe by this scriptures day. Um, I was. <laughs> I was really challenged by this this week and I, I don't preach from a, a place of, well, ah, <laughs> I've got it all sorted. Absolutely not. I know there are things I need to sort out in my own heart. But, you know, maybe you're thinking, gosh, I, I hope Jesus doesn't curse me and, and, and I cause me to wither and die. I just want to offer you some reassurance this morning. You are not a fig tree. It's an important message. You are God's beloved children. And you know, after Jesus cleared out the temple on Monday, he actually returns on Tuesday. And he begins to teach the people that are there what it means to really love God. And he begins to teach them again what it really means to love each other. And we're going to see that in these next chapters. But you know, the the truth is that sometimes God needs to clear out the rubbish in our lives to make way for something better. Something unexpected, perhaps. People had expected liberation from Rome, but Jesus brought them liberation from sin and death. He gave them a way to experience God that they'd never had before. And we shouldn't be afraid of Jesus clearing out the courts of our lives this morning. Because you know what he leaves in its place is his very presence. It's his very Holy Spirit that comes to live in us. We never miss out by making room for Jesus. And so I don't want you to leave this morning feeling condemned, but maybe just excited about what it is that Jesus is going to do in your life as you begin to make more room for him. As you begin to say, you know what, enough is enough. I need to deal with this, this thing that been, I've been hanging on to for too long. I need to push it out. I need to say no. I need to say enough is enough. Because I want more of you, God. I want more of your spirit in my life. I want you to fill me again. I don't want to give you this little corner that I've, I've reserved on a Sunday morning. But I want to give you all of me. Because I know that what you have for me is better. I wonder if you'd stand with me this morning.
I don't want this to just be about words today. It's a challenging message. I'm sorry. This is the trouble with going through books. You know, sometimes you get to really hard bits that you have to deal with. But we've got some time now here. We've got some time to pray. We've got some time to wait on the Spirit to make a connection with God this morning. And maybe as you've listened today, you know, he's already just kind of prompted you about the, that, that thing in your life that needs dealing with. So that he can move back in. So that he can move you forward. So that he can set you free. And so I would just encourage you, maybe let's just close our eyes. Let's not be, let's not be distracted by everyone next to us. Let's not worry about teas and coffees. Let's not think about whether the dinner's burning. But let's just use this time now. Let's use this time to connect our hearts with him. Heavenly Father, I just want to invite you into this place. God, would you just inspect our hearts today? As Jesus arrived in Jerusalem on the Sunday and looked around at everything, Father, would you look around at everything? Father, I make myself open to you doing that. And God, if there are things there, if there are things in my heart that should not be there, things that are preventing me from experiencing your presence in my life, things that are preventing me from praying to you, God. God, would you show me what they are? Would you clear them out? And Father, would you again just begin to fill me with your presence? God, this morning we want to say that that our desire is that we'd be connected to you, that we would remain connected attached to that life-giving vine. Father, that our roots would go deep. Father, they wouldn't wither away, but Father, that we would go deep into your presence this morning. Father, we want our lives to be fruitful. Filled with the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul describes it there. Father, filled with love and joy and peace and patience and forbearance and gentleness and self-control. Jesus, just minister to us this morning. Holy Spirit, just work in our hearts. Thank you, Father.